Father, I want to thank you for the presence of your spirit right now. Come, spirit, and burn like a fire in us. Lord, not just to purify, but, but put that hunger in us, God. We want to hunger for your word more. We want to hunger for uh, you just being in your presence more. We want to hunger for uh, that intimacy. We want to hunger for our brothers and sisters and intimacy and relationship there. God, if the devil has come in and, and in some way brought disunity, kick him out, Lord. If he's come into our marriages, kick him out, God. I just ask, Father, for your love, your abiding uh, presence in, in love in a very tangible way to be with us as your people. This is the hallmark of the people of God, love. And I ask you, God, that, uh, that tonight, that t- this evening, that as you speak to us through your word, that we would, we would receive it, that our hearts would be opened, our ears would be opened, and that we would hear what the Spirit has to say to the church tonight. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So we're talking about the church, and before we really get into it, um, if, you have, if you've had any opportunity, and, uh, and honestly, I think maybe just Juliana and I have been the only ones in there at this point, but you walk into the, the church building right now, and all of those rooms you know, on the left side of the hallway are all torn down, and the, the floor looks terrible. There's nails everywhere, there's studs everywhere, well, I think clean some of that up. But, man, you don't want to walk in there barefoot. But they're in the process now of building the walls that need to be built. And uh, they tried to clean the hallway, and they didn't use a vacuum cleaner. They used a, a broom. Yeah, good luck with that. But um, So I'm just praying that all that stuff comes up out of the carpet. But it's, it's neat to see that. And I have in front of me a, a blueprint of what it's going to look like. And for me, it's very exciting. Um, and, and you can see the chairs and the stage and the sound booth and ugh, and you know the cry room and, and all of these things. And, and for me, I see the, the people of God being ministered to, the losses that are coming, coming to Christ. And, and even though it's just stuff and it's things and walls here, that's what it speaks to me about. Um, if you were to turn just two pages over, um, this weekend, we're supposed to be starting to build the sound booth. And there is a page that instructs us how to build this because it's got to be done according to code. It's got to be able to support three tanks. At least it, it <laughs> seems that way. Um, it's got to be able to, uh, to, to hold people so that there's absolutely zero chance of it ever falling apart till Jesus comes, I guess. The, the idea, though, is that it's built well. So there's, there's different angles at it. There's this, the sound booth and how it's to be built and um, braces and all of this. And you have to follow it to the T because it, it needs to be able to, the, the architect has a plan. And in order to accomplish this plan, it's going to need to be built this way. And you don't want to build it out of toothpicks. You don't want to build it out of uh, tongue depressors. You don't want to build it out of clay. It's got to be exact type. It's got to be fire retardant wood, not just plain old wood. Um, and so there's, spe- there's specifications here. Tonight, we're going to kind of look at the broad blueprint of Jesus's church. And we're going to start by looking at some metaphors and what in earth is a metaphor and why does he, why does he call us the church? Why does he call us the bride of Christ? How many guys like that one? But there's, there's an importance to all of these things and the significance that we want to understand. And then we're going to kind of step back and let's look at the purpose of the church. Let's look at the goal and such. And so scripture gives us a blueprint. 
And throughout the centuries, people have just thought, well, it's okay to veer from the blueprint. Let's just go with man's methods. But, but Jesus has a method. There is a method. I mean, it doesn't matter if you build this and then this necessarily, but it has to be built like this, okay? And so I'm not saying we've got to throw man's methods out the window, but many times we hold the man's methods and throw God's out the window. And God has a way for us. God has a, a vision and a plan and a way to do this thing. And if we miss it, then we are going to be building a weak church. Jesus has plan A. He does not have a plan B. Because uh, just to think about a God having a plan B does serious damage to his sovereignty. God has a plan A, and it's going to work, church. It's going to work, and it's going to captivate the world, I believe. And we're going to see God doing awesome things. And my prayer is this generation, Jesus, please. But whenever the generation is, I want to live my life as if it is this generation that is going to experience uh, unknown, precedented expansion and nations coming to Christ and then ultimately Christ himself returning. Wouldn't that be awesome, church? Mm-hmm. Man, I tell you what, I am so looking forward to heaven. And uh, I, we were watching, this is off topic, maybe I should stop the recorder, but we were watching a movie on extreme sports and I just, it dawned on me, man, heaven was created for extreme sports. You can't die. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, anyways, it, it starts off by these guys as they're on their their motorbikes as they jump. They're on a mountain peak and they jump to another mountain peak or, or precipice. And there's only so much room for them to stop. And the guy stops and he's he's fine. But the next guy stops and he goes just a little bit too far. And I won't tell you what happens what ne- what happens next. But, uh, you got to watch the movie, I guess. Anyways, we watched it on Clear Place, so I don't know if I can recommend it or not. But. Um, it was, it was, you know, extreme sports. Well, yeah, extreme, it's out there. But uh, anyways, focus here. The, the purpose, the plan of the church, um, and, and then we also want to get into the local church because many people in our day have really been disillusioned with the local church and have given up on the local church. And I just want to say Jesus has not given up on the local church, and that is still his plan A. People, it, it's still plan A. Okay, many people want a plan B, uh, but there is no plan B. There just isn't. <clears throat> so as, as we look at these metaphors, can someone tell me what a metaphor is? What is a metaphor? Can I answer this? It's yeah. like... I think I'm funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. You're describing like, you know, um, I'll do an example, uh, like a wave as big as a sea. So you're, it's, you're using one thing to describe another. Kind of thing. Okay, all right. Um, and a metaphor is, is very similar to what they call a simile. but a And so what we have here is an object that is used to describe something um, like a... Uh, yeah. Anyways, the church. The, the church itself is... Um, is actually a metaphor because ecclesia means called out ones and that that describes us but as we look through these uh, these metaphors the first one that we have here is the body of Christ and we technically are not the body of Christ though Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his writings 
because there's just so many things that are misaligned in his teachings. He, he says that we are Christ on the earth and that there really truly is no Christ in heaven. And so he has a very distorted view of who Jesus is. He doesn't believe that Jesus is God. But, you know, we, that, that we represent Christ. We are not Christ, we, but we do represent Christ. We are ambassadors. And so the body of Christ is what the world gets to see of Jesus, unless he should divinely appear to them. He did it to Paul. He could do it to them, I suppose. But the world and, and us need to see Jesus in one another, being lived through, Jesus being lived through one another. And so we are the body of Christ. And I'm just going to read a, a verse to you here. It says, now, uh, this is Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And there's many passages that refer to the church, uh, the people of God, as the body of Christ. Now, what does that metaphor, the body of Christ, say to you? How does, how does Paul, anyone, any New Testament, when they use the term body of Christ, what does that show us or reveal to us about the church, then. Kate. Um, I was just reading in First Corinthians, and in twelve, I think. Okay. Um, he uses that metaphor to show how, like, each of us is a part of the body, and so we're distinct, but we're united, and um, and you need each part to function. So, okay. you need the eyes mm -hmm. and the ears. You need the hands <coughs> and the feet. The parts that are less presentable, we treat with special modesty, and the parts that like. You know, like our kidneys or our spleen or, you know, we don't think about them, but they're really, really, really important. And okay, the same yes, they way, are. every part is really, really important in the body of Christ okay. and has a role and a function. And a any, any spleens here tonight? Can I be a kidney? Kidneys? You want to be a kidney? You be a kidney. Okay. All right. That's, that's it. That's good. That's good. Cool. Colon. <laughs> yes, you are. And we just so appreciate that, Colin. All right. Yes. Okay. And, and so Paul in First Corinthians twelve actually describes you know some of you are hands and feet and you don't want to the hand doesn't say to the foot we don't need you and vice versa. Though sometimes those feet can really get stinky, but they're important. All right. They get us where we need to go. You never look to your feet and say, "Man, I just can't stand you." Um, I might say that about some of you guys' feet, but I'm not going to say that about my own. Well, okay. All right. Uh, I, yeah, I am one that needs to wear socks. Yes, yes, okay. Um, what else? Anything else that the body of Christ says? Okay, Rachel? Like, God uses us to work on earth. Just, like, use our bodies to build up things. And I think, like, he uses us for his servants. Okay. Parts of the body, they do things. They have functions. Zach? I was just like with that, we're almost like the physical extension of Christ's heart, where we should be. Okay. All right. Good. All right. I, I, I'm not like completely opposed to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was saying. I understand what he was trying to say. It's just that he went way too far in his description of the body of Christ. Um, Scott, were you going to say something? Yeah, just we're, we're the representatives of Christ on earth. Okay. 
All right. And so we each have a function. And so this is why the metaphor is used. The no- another metaphor we have is the bride of Christ. This has, has a tendency not to sit too well with us guys. But guys, we need to get over it because it wasn't just written to the ladies of the church. Okay, um, We are called, and I want you to turn to Revelation, um, Revelation 19. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. We are his betrothed, and, and in that sense, we are also considered his wife in Jewish tradition. The betrothed was called wife, the, the, the man was called the husband. Um, but this is the wedding feast, this is something that will happen. And in verses 7 and 9, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, then the, angel, okay, then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Why would God give us this metaphor of the bride of Christ? What does that communicate? What truth is being communicated through that metaphor. Bruno? Well, when you think about bride and her husband, they, when, essentially, the, the consummation of marriage is one flesh. Okay. And just kind of gave several examples of how mm-hmm. we're the body of Christ. So for us to be in, in the body of Christ, we essentially share with the body of Christ. So that's a whole picture of marriage is that there's one flesh mm-hmm. and the one flesh is the complete union okay. with Christ. All right. So our union with Christ is something that's pointed out. Juliana? Well, in Jewish marriages, the engagement, you were considered married, basically. But it wasn't until the groom came back for the bride that they consummated the marriage. And so I think it's interesting to study it because like, we are already the bride of Christ. We are engaged. He has already claimed us. We, you know, in every aspect, we are to be considered married to him except that consummation of marriage, which won't happen until heaven. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, to understand how we are Christ's now and then we also will be. And so he, you know, at, then he'll, like, come for his bride later and so and then you know Paul uses the example that you know just like a groom loves his bride you know Christ loves the church and as the bride is supposed to be submissive to her groom so the church is submissive to Christ and he's the head of of the bride and everything there's a lot in there and as you were touching on uh, it has eschatological with Christ coming for his bride as the man would come to the woman's house blow a trumpet even, uh, shout, and not just him, but others would shout, and give that would give warning, so to speak, that uh, your man is coming for you, get ready, okay? And she would have all, everything all set, all ready. Um, the husband, when he would go away, after he was betrothed, he would go away and he would build a house. And this is exactly, he says, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. 
So there's a lot of what I'm going to call eschatological implications to this uh, concept of us being a bride. But there's more. Kate? Um, also, just like in that period of engagement, when you're waiting to get married and you're a bride, you, you're so caught up with your groom. Like, you think about him all the time and you look forward to your wedding with such anticipation. Like, it's like the fulfillment of all your daydreams. And you do all these things to try to be as beautiful as possible. Someone will lose, like, ridiculous amounts of weight. That's ridiculous. But, like, you know, and you do all these, like, silly pampering things that you've never done before because you just want to be so beautiful for your groom. And um, you have all these maids, bridesmaids, who help, like, help you be pretty, and you have this beautiful white dress. And a lot of that is so symbolic of, how we look forward to Jesus coming. He is supposed to be the absolute consuming focus and desire of our hearts. And um, I think it's really beautiful in Ephesians 5 when it says he is actually the one who dresses us and clothes us in the white robe. And mm-hmm. that's something we as brides do for our groom. But Jesus like takes the additional step of doing preparing us for himself to be okay. that beautiful bride. And what do... What do the what, it, it talks about white linen, you know, the white dress that the bride has. What does this represent? The righteous acts of the saints. Okay, great. Uh, if we were to turn to Revelation twenty-one, uh, verse nine, it says, "One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the, la- the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb.'" And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And what we see then is none other than the bride, but he doesn't talk. And now he uses another metaphor to describe this metaphor, okay? The metaphor is the bride, the wife of the lamb. And now the metaphor that he uses here, and I want to be careful. It's, I don't want to, it is a metaphor, but it is actually what John saw, so I would have to say that it is more than a metaphor. But he sees the New Jerusalem, and as he describes the New Jerusalem and the precious stones, it re- it's beautiful to behold, and the dimensions are perfect, okay? Um, playing off of the number 12, but it's perfect, it's beautiful. And so, as Kate is talking about, sometimes the skies, we can lose that... that, that uh, the, the understanding and the implications of this metaphor, the bride of Christ, because the bride gets herself ready. She, she's prepared. Now, Jesus talked about the, the ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. Um, some had their lamps trimmed with oil and some did not. Uh, so that let, leans in this direction of being prepared. But church, this we need, we are being called to be prepared, and that is being more and more conformed into the image of Jesus or transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3. So you know, that's, that's where we're going here. And then also just the sense of intimacy that you, were, you guys have touched on. Intimacy with Jesus, this is important. The heart of our relationship with Christ is that sense of intimacy. That's what relationship is, okay? It's, it's that sense of intimacy. And the, the husband-wife relationship best unravels or unveils, sorry, that was kind of a play on words there, I guess, but unveils the, what, what that intimacy is like. Bruno? 
And like to us Western men, it is kind of a foreign concept of like us men being the bride. But it's interesting because I was actually doing some studying on this. But even in Old Testament, when you read in the Old Testament, anytime the word bride is in there, God, even Yahweh, refers to his people as the bride. So even the ancient Jew, Palestinian Jew, would understand like what the concept of bride would mean. And even John chapter four, he mentions, he talks about the bridegroom and he being the friend mm-hmm. of the bridegroom and rejoicing yeah. the bridegroom actually taking his bride. So every Jew knew exactly what that meant because right. Old Testament Israel was covenantal God, Yahweh, would always be himself and call his bride and even the illustration that he had in the back of dude, which was anyways, but that's always the concept of the bride is that's mm-hmm. God's holy people that he's always yeah. called out. And of course the in Hosea when it talks about that Gomer and that Gomer left in, in, in adulterous relationships and she was cast off. And really a perfect image of God calling his people to himself. Awesome. Uh, the family of God. Uh, Ephesians 3, 14 to 15. Let's turn there if we could. Uh, well, sorry, I'm losing myself here. Ephesians, here we go. <clears throat> 14 and 15. Madeline, do you want to read that? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Whoever says... 14 and 15. 14 and 15. Yep. Okay. <laughs> His whole family derives its name. You know, my whole family, including my wife, now bears the last name Curtis. I hope that's an honor rather than a dishonor, but the, <laughs> they bear my name now. And and what 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 is what was the significance of a name? Identification. Okay, identification. Lineage. Lineage. Okay. Uh, Jehovah Jireh is one of God's names. So like a character God the provider. Okay, so it reveals, a name reveals something about us. Many times when a child was born, a significant name was given to him. Um, so the, like Jabez, which means pain. How would you like to be called pain? <laughs> anyway, she was born in pain, but anyways, I'm, I'm sure there was special significance. He ended up being a very godly man. But names have significance. And so God has given us his name, if you want to call it Christian, regardless. I don't think that's his point. The idea, though, is that we are part of his family. We derive our inheritance through the Father. We derive uh, our sense of authority because we are royalty when you're born into a royal family. Uh, you know, you, you don't start living in a... Uh, uh, a poor man's house. You live in the palace, and so there's certain <clears throat> rights and privileges, and it's because of your name, because of your lineage, and and so for us to be part of the family of God, that implies that Jesus is our older brother. That implies that God, of course, is our father. It does not imply that there is a mother. Okay. Uh, obviously, in uh, like the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is called the Mother of God, and I understand what they're trying to say with that. But it has taken on uh, too much um, 
veneration of Mary, and she has often been viewed as the mediator between man and Jesus Christ. And there is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. All right, God is Jesus is God, and so we don't need another mediator. Jesus is not this scowling, frowning. just wanting to destroy mankind type of God that Mary has to say, now, 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 Jesus, let's let's take a few steps back and let's reconsider. And I'm being a little facetious here, maybe unfair, but we need to realize there is no mother in this picture. There is a father, there is a son, and there is the family, okay? Now, what are the implications, some more implications of us being a part of the family, or the family of God? We help each other. Okay. All right. There's like a, a loyalty, I feel like. There well, there should be like in family in that you defend your siblings and your parents defend you and it's a safe it's a safe place. You guys fight for one another. Okay. All right. We have each other's back. Uh, what terminology is used instead of siblings in the Bible? Brothers, brothers and sisters. sisters. So we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Like it or not. All right. Saxon, you're my brother. You, you can also be called my son in that sense, but that's going to step out of that particular metaphor. <laughs> family of God. Um, but the, 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 the truth is we, we have each other's back. Uh, you may have heard the term foxhole brothers. All right. That basically means that we are here and we're going to live and we're going to die for one another. Okay. And this is this is what Jesus did for us. He, he lived for us and he died for us. We're willing to live for one another and die for one another. Okay. Because of this idea of loyalty in the Old Testament, we call it Hesed. Uh, in the New Testament, you use the term agape for that word Hesed, which means loyalty or love. And so within agape, let's understand there is a fierce loyalty. All right. This, this love for God and this fierce agape love for one another. It's, there's that loyalty. Okay, I'm going to need to move on. Uh, the army of God. <clears throat> um, in, in chapter 19, it talks about the army of God fighting against the beast, the false prophet, the kings of the earth, etc. And in what way then might we be viewed as an army? As soldiers in Christ. Supposed to battle. I'm sorry. We're supposed to battle. Battle. Okay. So, do we battle one another and, and use our swords to? Not against, yes. not against flesh and blood. It's against. <laughs> who's our battle against? Okay. Of darkness. All right. So it's against it's against the fallen angels that inhabit this world and specifically in the heavenly realms, which is the spirit realm. And we need to realize that there is a battle that goes on. And whether we see it or not, it's every day. The battle is there every day. And God intentionally has physically blinded our eyes so that we don't see that spiritual battle, but it still exists. And I think it would probably totally freak us out if we did see it. Uh, But it's there and it happens. And we need to realize that we are soldiers and we are here to fight a battle um, this battle in Revelation is going uh, is against the beast, however you understand it. The beast uh, as representing evil or, or the end-time person that embodies evil, the man of lawlessness. 
So our battle is against evil, and Christ, though, leads us into victory, and especially at the end when he comes back, leading us into victory. So there is a battle that we are engaged in, and so this is significant. Now, there are other metaphors that are in the Bible. We're also called the house or household of God. All right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That term house doesn't mean the building. This, this building, you know, Zach and Kate's building is not here to, you know, serve the Lord. He, the intent, the idea is household. So me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so we are the house or household of God, but we are also a holy house or holy dwelling habitation, and therefore we are a temple. So we're also the temple of God. What would temple imply? I didn't. That's not in your notes here. I'm just throwing this out because there are more metaphors. What, what would a temple imply? A holy place. Holy place meaning. Place for Okay. So bring that into present terminology instead of leaving it in the metaphor. So, like yes, a temple is a place to make sacrifices. What does that mean for me now? Where we worship God. Yeah. Okay. We are the temple of God. Okay, so this gets beyond the building. All right? So we are the temple of God. What does that mean? Christ well, we have to be built together. Okay, we have to be built together because individually I am a temple of God, but corporately we are also the temple of God. It also brings into that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Okay, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, foundation of the prophets. That individually and we're in him, but then corporately we're in him as a temple. Okay. Well, what, what place does the Holy Spirit play in this? That's it indwells it. Okay, the whole God indwells us by His Spirit, and that's what makes us holy. Okay, and leads us into in progressive holiness. Okay, anybody else? So, as the temple individually and corporately, we worship and connect with God. Individually, yes, good. But we also there's a way in which we worship God only together. Okay. With the whole body. All right. So individually and corporately, we need to experience worship in this way. Okay. So we need to be careful. So it, that's really a significant point because as we move on, we're going to be looking at this idea of worshiping God. And there are two levels that we're going to need to see worship at or, or, or on. At, on, by, for. Anyways. We, okay, we're a royal priesthood. We're a royal nation. These are some other metaphors. And again, the metaphor speaks. It, it's a picture that communicates truth. And, uh, and these are awesome, awesome truths. But we worship Jesus individually, but we are called to worship him corporately because our corporate worship, it says that, that God is tabernacled or inhabits the praises of his people in Psalms. And that, there, that where two or more are gathered, there, is he in, there he is in their midst. I mean, he is in me, and yet in another sense, when two or more are gathered together, he is there in their midst. All right, And so when we gather together, Christ is there in our midst. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, when talking about the immoral brother, when you're gathered together and Christ is there in your midst, uh, turn his flesh over to, to Satan. Um, that church discipline, that's another week. We won't get into that tonight. <laughs> but Christ is in our midst. Christ is here right now. And he's, he's in me. Scripture makes that clear. Christ is in me, but he is also here in our midst. Because we are gathered corporately. As we worship, we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We build one another up. As, as Juliana sits next to me and worships God, her worship 
impacts me. When you worship, you impact the people around you. So let's now move into this idea of worshiping God is the purpose of the church. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Can someone read Romans 12, 1? First person to get there. Just read it out loud. Okay, all right. Uh, this idea of, uh, of worship here, this is the Greek word latruo. It is different than the, this other term that you see in your notes, proskuneo. Latruo is, it's, it's not the idea of lifting your hands, it's not the idea of shouting to God or praising him or bowing down before him, that's proskuneo. That is something that we see throughout the, the Psalms. Um, Latruo is a heart that is devoted and thereby sacrificing and serving God with his every breath, and therefore living, breathing, sacrifice, okay? And so in everything that we do, we are this living sacrifice poured out as an offering um, for serving Christ. And in this way, then, in everything that we do, we worship him. I, I'm going to not use that word worship, but I'm going to use the term serving, only because if, if, we, if we're not careful, we're going to confuse latruo with proskuneo, Okay? And they are separate terms in Hebrew. There are different terms that are used. And as long as we understand when I'm using the term worship now, I am talking about an act of worshiping and exalting him with, my, with voice, with clapping of the hands. And by the way, clapping of the hands is not something that we do because God has entertained us. We don't clap necessarily. In fact, I don't think there's a scripture passage that talks about clapping your hands to the beat of the music, though there's nothing opposed to that. The clapping of the hands is something that is done to honor. Okay, It's an expression of honor. Uh, when we get into worship in a couple of weeks, we'll look at that a little bit more. But this type of expression of worship is different than my act of service or worship, latruo, when I am glorifying God in my work. But what we do need to see is in everything that we do, our goal is to glorify God. Turn with me to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So again, I, I tend to shy away from translating the true worship only because there is this tendency to, to minimize the act of worship and praise because that is something that is, you could see it as a part of La Truo, but La Truo is in every act, everything that we do, and I think it's better translated service, that is me serving God as this living sacrifice poured out for him, not for myself. 
Okay, so my mindset should be as First Corinthians ten thirty one says in everything that I do in my thoughts, words, actions. My goal is to glorify God. Let me read this verse. Um, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do can glorify God. I want you to think about that. Everything we do can glorify God. Here, In order for us to really grasp this, I want you to think of, and, and this is just an analogy, I want you to think of a machine that you invented and you have perfected, and when it runs the way it's supposed to, you step back and it's like, yes, it works. And it's working perfectly and it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's not breaking down. And, and, and people will actually come up to you and say, no way, did you really invent this? This is awesome. This is absolutely amazing. And you end up receiving praise or glory, if you will, from others. When we are that machine and we are fulfilling what God has called us to do, the gears turning glorify the inventor. The way it's manufactured, it glorifies the inventor, okay? Um, just the fact that my eyes see glorifies God. My appearance glorifies God. The fact that I am walking glorifies God because God has created me and part of that is for my body to function a certain way. Um... So everything that my body does glorifies God. My work, the work of my hands, glorifies God. I don't care how tedious you think your work is. It glorifies God. Our words glorify God. Our eating and drinking. He created it. It was created for us to consume. It glorifies God. My working and my resting my using my skills that God has given me and my knowledge glorifies God. My laughing, even my crying, glorifies God. My playing games, my being creative, these things glorify God. So do you see that, that Everything that we do has the potential to glorify God. The problem, though, is when sin gets thrown in there, it's like that gear getting chipped, and now it tends to skip. And that is not bringing the glory to God, the glory to the inventor that it's supposed to. And so I, I want to get rid of that sin because it hinders me from truly glorifying God and and reflecting Christ, the God-man, all right? Jesus was the perfect person to glorify the Father, and we seek to follow in his footsteps. Was there any questions about that? I thought I saw maybe a hand up. Yes, John? So, so if you can't see, is your eye not glorifying God? Um... Whatever it is capable of doing, okay. it was certainly not God's original intention. So it's unfinished? Uh, I, I'm not sure how to word that, honestly. What, what about the layman that they brought to Jesus? And his disciples were wondering, 
Okay. Sure. So we want to say that because someone can't see, it doesn't mean that it's it's sin. But everything that our body does and the way it functions, it's just the our, the problem is in a fallen world, our bodies don't always function the way they do. <coughs> but my point is, even the way our body functions glorifies God. Everything, not just everything that we do, but our, even the way our body functions, because he created us a certain way, and it brings glory to him. But everything, of course, that we say, everything that we think, everything that we do, glorifies him. And, 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 and in part, what this does, it begins to paint a picture that if you were to... I don't know if you've ever created something and you step back and say, wow, I did it. It works. I can't believe it works. <laughs> Anybody, you know, you, you, you put something together and, and man, it actually works. I, and uh, maybe the directions were super complicated. Maybe you invented it, okay? And it works. I, I love to watch those movies where they start out and the, the alarm goes off and then this triggers this and this triggers this and this triggers this and it goes through about a hundred things and finally... He has his scrambled eggs, bacon, and toast on his plate that he can sit down and eat, okay? Uh, anyways, you know, cool invention. But everything about us uh, glorifies God. And God then is excited and he rejoices over his creation because his creation is doing what it was intended to do, okay? And... So we, we therefore have the opportunity to walk in that pleasure of God as we, as, as we live in his kingdom and honor and glorify him in everything. But this other concept of worship, and I'm going to use the term here, adoration, but proskuneo is that aspect of worship. When we are gathered together, for example, example and we're worshiping him, um, that's, that's absolutely important. That is separate from the latruo that I'm talking about, okay? And, that is, and, and I make them separate because I want to make sure this we are engaging in proskunet. We're engaging in this type of adoration and worship of the Father, and it should be intense, okay? Um, and we see that intensity before the throne throughout the book of Revelation, people shouting to God, um, even silence for a space of half an hour. But they, they called out to him, uh, all glory and honor and power and dominion and praise belong to you. And casting their crowns before him, this type of sacrifice laid out to worship him and lift him up. Um, and that now then moves us into this idea that I want to turn to Matthew 25 because we will one day be called to account for how we utilized everything that God has given us, okay? Let's understand that if we were to go back to Genesis 1, I'm not going to do that, but we were called to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals that creep along the ground. We were called to subdue the earth. That does not mean rape the earth of its, of its resources, but we are called to care for it. In the next chapter, we see a great example of this, and that is Adam being called to care for, to tend the garden. And that was his job. So we are called with our knowledge, with our skills, 
to be able to utilize everything that God has given us that I'll call resources to be able to glorify God, to be able to grow in our knowledge. Uh, the, the lost of this world use it to glorify man. God's intention was that we use this so that we would glorify him, so that we would discover medicines that would bring healing and, and such, buildings that would seek to honor God um, rather than the buildings such as the one of Babel. And we see Babel's towers everywhere in, in the world. Um, so as we turn to Matthew 25, we see an example of, of this type of being called to an account in the parable of the talents, and I'm not going to read the whole parable, but I'm just going to read the beginning here in verse 14. It says again, it will be like the kingdom of God. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Um, so he entrusts property. That which he owned, he is now entrusting to his servants. We are his we are God's servants. He is the, the owner and he's entrusting that which belongs to him to us. He's entrusting relationships to us. He's entrusting uh, earth's resources to us. He's entrusting the skill set that he has given you. He's entrusting the personality that he has given you. He's entrusting the knowledge that he is, or the ability to acquire knowledge. Some people go throughout their life, they have no aspirations to grow in knowledge. I think that is so sad. In heaven, that will change, I believe. I believe we'll have an opportunity to grow in our knowledge. We're not going to be omniscient, okay? If we're not omniscient, then that means there's going to be an ability for us to grow in knowledge, right? Because omniscience means knowing everything, and only God knows everything. I believe the angels are growing in knowledge. We're going to have that opportunity, but... This idea of, of knowledge is important. It's not an end in itself. Okay? So we need to acquire knowledge. John, comment, question? Does children fall under that category? Uh, being entrusted? Yes. With, I would say absolutely. Sure. Render unto Caesars what is Caesars and unto God what is God's. God has given you that child who is made in the image of God and he, your, chi- your two children are his property that he's now entrusted to you. And at the end of the age, when you stand before him, you will have a wonderful privilege to give an account for that property that he entrusted to you. What did you, what did you do? Well, right now, you, you took one and you've made two. <laughs> you've taken one talent and made... I, I guess that could fit. Um, but the idea, though, it, 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 even more so, is what you're pouring into them and how you're raising them and how are they now going to glorify God as they grow up and... Um, man, being a, I know for me, being a dad is such an exciting thing as you are, you are such an integral part of this child's life. And hopefully it's a good integral part and not a bad integral part. Many parents um, really hurt their children. And as a pastor now, and, and others, of course, all of you guys in the church, we're ministering to one another because some of the mistakes that we've made as parents, that I have made as a parent, um, but God is graciously bringing growth and maturity from all of that, even though we have failed. So we will one day give an account for all of these things that he's entrusted to us. You know, God has given me a house. 
And, and I take that seriously. I try to do the best I can. In all honesty, I always feel like there's a whole lot more that I need to do, not just can do, but need to do. And uh, But that is something I will give an account to him for. You know, how, how well did I do? Did I just, did I take a treasured possession and just let it fall apart? Um, I have done that with some of my property, some of my things. And I didn't properly maintain them. When I was a, a, a lawn business owner, I had a tendency to not maintenance my tractor as I needed to, and it, it would tend to break down. And God just was really challenging me. There, you know, Mike, no excuses. I realized that I was working a full-time job, and I was going to school just about full-time and having a family. But I still needed to maintain that. But it was just easy to, to not do that. And so I, I want to be a good steward of, of my children. God has given me a wonderful wife. I need to maintain my wife, if you will. Um, I need to... <laughs> that, yeah, that probably didn't come across real well. I, I, want to, I, I want to encourage her. I want to make sure that she doesn't get discouraged. I want to make sure that... Um, and I'm praying with her. I want to make sure that, that we have... Our relationship is good. And this is something that I personally regularly realize I need to work on. You know, with my children too. But these are these are things that have been entrusted to me. Your job has been entrusted to you. Time has been entrusted to you. And all of these things will be given and we'll have to be giving an account for. These are things God has given to us. I'm going to encourage you, if God has given you a you know, certain skills, I call it a skill set, because you don't have just one skill. You have a skill, you have spiritual gifts, you have certain abilities and intellectual capacities. All of these things work together for you to fulfill... God's special call in your life and that changes but today how can you fulfill God's call on your life or how did you what did you do now just because you didn't win someone to Christ doesn't mean that you failed okay please let's understand that but what did you do with your time how, being called to account what did we do and in all honesty, I think God doesn't step back and scrutinize so that he's trying to find fault. He's trying to find those things that are good and are a blessing. Because the focus here is rewards and not punishments. Do you understand what I'm saying here? God is looking for rewards to dispense rewards to, to us. He's not wanting, it doesn't say at the very end that he took the guy out to the woodshed. Except this guy who did absolutely nothing and he's a picture of someone who's lost. So the, the focus here isn't discipline and punishment. It's, it's blessings and rewards that he wants to lavish upon us. And so that's what Christ is looking for. So I want to make sure that I, I am, I'm doing what I can for him. And I'm not, I'm, it's not a, that being called to an account one day is not weighing upon me as this heavy weight that I just some, some, I'm just displeasing God. God is not being displeased with us. He's, he's displeased with our sin, but he is pleased with us. And uh, sorry, I, I did touch on that this past Saturday night. Um, it, it goes on to, to say that he, in verse 21, he says, his master replied to the one who had five talents and gained five more. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. There's no sign of discipline here, but only rewards and blessings. Only good things that we have to look forward to in Christ. And it, it's the sins of this world that will hold us back from being able to gain even more for the future. But the, 
gaining more. Those are the blessings. Those are the rewards. So um, this person had five, gained five more, and he entered into his master's happiness. Okay? So even though we're talking about giving an account, the focus here is the master's happiness. All right. Um, number three, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Turn with me to, to just a few chapters to the right in Matthew 28. <clears throat> I want to be careful. I'm not going to just jump into 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations because verse 18 is integrally connected with this because Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore make disciples the main verb here is make disciples the main verb is not go actually the the word go is not in command form the word baptize is not in command form the word teach is not in command form there's only one verb that's in command form and it's make disciples go make disciples while you are going Okay, so the focus is making disciples. But to make disciples, that means you've got to go. That means you've got to baptize, which means conversions. And you've got to teach them whatever I've commanded you. And I, I do believe that this command is not just given to the 12. It is given to all of us as a mandate that all of us need the sharing. Now, some are going to be more gifted and able to do this than others. But the, the truth is, the most important thing to acquire is not this awesome skill set, but it is character. And character is what builds into people. Both the, not just your awesome ability to spellbound, spellbind, spellbound people uh, <laughs> with your stories and teaching, but with, with the character of Christ. A dad training his son or daughter. He doesn't have to be this incredibly gifted teacher, but he does have to teach. He does have to train. Let me show you how to do this with your hands. Let me show you how to sit and, and assess this movie. You know, is it good? Is it bad? You know, this child, this, the, the hero is praised, but was the hero a good hero or a bad hero? He, he's really a wicked person, and yet at the very end, we're rooting for him. Why is that? How did that happen? You know, that, that's, that's not a godly character that we want to fashion our life after. I don't want to be an ungodly hero. Okay, so he saved thousands, but he was a wicked man. So we want to save the thousands, but we want to be godly. So as a man, as a woman, you have the opportunity to pour to your children. You have the opportunity to be aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters in Christ to others and impact them and, and make disciples. Was there a hand raised? John, yeah. sure. Go for uh, it. So, you know how, like, Scripture says that a teacher will be held accountable twice as much? Well, I mean, even more so. Right. Sure. So does a parent fall under that too because of teaching their son or their daughter so-and-so-and-so? Now, God, get they're allowed off the hook totally. Sweet. Now, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yes, you will be. Yes, you will be. Okay? You are in the position of teacher. If you don't teach or train or admonish your children, we will be held accountable. 
As a matter of fact, if I don't do that, I'm not even qualified to be an elder in the church. Okay? That is important. Bruno? I just have a quick question on that because I think the passage he's talking about isn't contextually talking about not everyone aspires to be a teacher because those who do will be held accountable for not every not everyone should sure, aspire right. to be a teacher so, because they'll be held in So how do we translate that into ubiquitously to the entire body of Christ because everybody is a teacher? And so for for in that the, the the actual context is leaning more towards a, an official teacher office in the church and therefore since people look up to you you have this position then you're going to be held more accountable okay so not all of you should aspire to be teachers. You need to grow in character. And so therefore, what a strong emphasis there is, First Timothy 3, Titus 1, on character as opposed to skills and talents. And, you know, people have asked me, well, Pastor, you're, you're a pastor, but you're an introvert. And I said, yeah, that can work against me, but it can also work for me. At least I like to believe it does. Uh, but I am, when, when, I, when I do a personality survey, I am an introvert. Um, I, I, some people don't realize that right away because I have had to learn to deal with that so that I don't always go off into a corner when there's a church meeting, okay? Because <laughs> I'm an introvert. Um, I realize, you know, there's a, greater, um, there's a greater goal here, okay? And that's just not my comfortability being alone, but it is the needs of people, so let's meet those needs. Um, Kate, you have a comment, question? Oh, I was just going to say, adding to that, um, I mean, being a parent is an authority and it is a teaching role. I think we can, though that verse is specifically talking about perhaps the office of teacher, we can extend that principle to say not many should aspire to be parents if you're not willing to take that responsibility. And and in that context, he's talking about um, like if anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, and he's just this high standard of righteousness where you never speak sin, which is not any of us. But I think in your home, I mean, your kids see that and they're so affected by it. And I think a big reason that you're you're held more responsible is because your sin now no longer just affects the person you are. If you struggle with an addiction or you struggle with anger or pride or lust or selfishness, that will now be formed in your children just as in a teacher that is formed. You know, in those you, you mentor, they take on your characteristics. And honestly, I think in the family, that's going to happen sometimes even more so than a teacher because who sees you all the time? And, like, it's a very weighty thing. I mean, I, like, I pray so much harder now for sin in my life because I think Rusty sees this every day. And if I don't want this shaped in him, like, God needs to purify it out of yeah. me. Now, that shouldn't keep us from being a parent necessarily. It, it should cause us, if I'm going to step into parenthood, okay, God, wh- whatever is in here that I'm going to pass on to my kids that's not good, I need your grace in my life to get rid of that. Um, and, and if it's a temper, ask God to, to break that, to change it, um, and appeal to his grace and surrender to him so that the Spirit of God can work in you. And I'm mentioning it this way because we, because of this the sermon this past Saturday night uh, talking about grace. It is by, it's grace from beginning to end, um, but nevertheless, grace doesn't mean leniency. You know, you should have more grace there. You know, so God has more grace for Christians. Okay, no, God, that's not what grace means. Grace is the empowerment 
to be able to live a godly life. And as a parent, I need grace to control my temper. I need grace to be able to speak truth and love. I need grace for my wife. Not so that I'm lenient with her, but yeah, probably should be, but so that I'm kind and, and, and building her up, okay? Rather than just finding myself frustrated for whatever reason, okay? So what Kate said, I don't want us to shy away from being a parent unless God's just saying, well, you know when you're ready. But we can, we can feel this way, especially in our day. I just don't feel like I can do it. I don't feel like I'm not perfect enough. And so people do get married much later. And, and I'm just going to challenge us. Don't shy away from that. Um, don't say you're just disqualified. Just step into that with, with counsel. But they, they say man up. But you know, for a woman, that might be a little bit hard. Doesn't fit. The, the idea, though, is God, you give me your grace so I can do this. He will do that. God gives grace to the humble. He will give you the grace to be a good parent. He will. But it requires our constant attention and surrender and prayer, fasting. It is not easy. Not a cakewalk. Not, not something that we treat casually. Okay? I, I need to move on. Um, the, the idea, though, of discipleship, and, and honestly, this is something that could take our entire time. In every church, if you were to ask a pastor of any church, do you, do you, is your goal to make disciples? I don't know the pastor who's going to say, nope, that's not our goal. We don't want to make disciples. What? Um, unless they're the church of Satan. Uh, the idea, though, is that, that, that all pastors want to do this, but do they do it according to the way Jesus did it? And, and this is where we start getting in this idea of many times, especially in our day, we take church growth principles or some other man's, of man's methods, and we, we tend to uh, push God's methodology out of the way to make room for man's methodology. And every time we do this, we will eventually, in building with wood, hay, and stubble, it will be, it will be discovered. Now, I would venture to say that many pastors in our day, they, they may be building with wood, hay, and stubble, but there, there, many times there is some gold, silver, and precious stones in there. Um, but we, we do tend to rely so much on man's methodology. And Jesus, his method was so simple. Make disciples. That, that means, well, that, that, that has so many implications. Of, our goal is never to build a big congregation. Our goal is to make disciples. And the more disciples we make, I guess the church will grow. Um, for Powerland, we've seen a lot of people come and, and, and as they're attaining maturity, they move on here or there. Um, okay, we've had an opportunity to make disciples and pour into them. I rejoice in that. You know, it, it can be a little bit discouraging when you have to say goodbye to someone because they moved to Virginia or Texas or North Carolina. I mean, that's hard. Or Germany, yeah. Man, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, sometimes that really stinks. But, but God's in control, and that means we have a privilege of being able to sow seeds, okay? And that's the way, as a pastor, I have to view it. We're sowing seeds, okay? But our goal is making disciples. That's our goal. It's pouring into one another. First, um, First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul uses the metaphor of a mother and a father with regard to this as a parent and how he's mothered them, how he's fathered them. And there's different implications for the mother, different, different implications for the father metaphor. But this is how we care for one another. And so we move on now to this idea that we care for others. 
And, and I want you to weigh this. I was reading in a book, and he's an evangelist, and he says that Jesus did miracles, and in doing the miracles, he gained an audience to listen to his teaching, and as they listened to his teaching, that many came to Christ. And then he concluded this way. He said, it is more important that we demonstrate love to the world so that we might win them than it is to demonstrate love to the church. And I stepped back and said, man, you had me up until that last sentence there. Because that's not a true statement. It's not more important to show love to the world than it is to the church. Actually, let's turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and we're going to see something that's, that's different than the conclusion that this evangelist came to. So in chapter 6, he does say in verse 9, don't become weary in doing good. I mean, how many of us have become weary in doing good? Don't, don't, don't become weary. Don't give up. The proper time you're going to reap a harvest. <clears throat> and then he says, therefore. Why don't we give up? Therefore. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially, and that's a good translation of the Greek there. This isn't the NIV inserting their personal opinion. Especially to those who belong to the family of believers or the household of faith. That right there, and there's others we can look at, but that right there tells me that there is a priority in who we extend love to. If we, you know, in my family, there's a priority who I show love to. And I just want you guys to know, I have that priority. I will show love to my family before I show love to you. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like wording it that way. Um, but my priority is to provide for my family's needs before I can provide for the church's needs. Um, and, it, and financially, if I don't do that, I'm worse than an unbeliever. Okay? So very significant that Scripture makes that clear, that my family needs to be a priority there. But nevertheless, it can't hold me back from ministry. It can't. And that was, that was Jesus' uh, implication there. He says, how many of you have, have uh, left family and homes and uh, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children for the kingdom of God? There were times in which Peter had to leave his home for a period of time to be able to proclaim the gospel, okay? So there were sacrifices in that. But he would have to be able to step back and say, you know what, but my main priority is my family. And if my family cannot do without me and my wife is going through a season that is very difficult, God is calling me to be at home right now and I'm not going to travel. And all of that, I'm sure, worked out into the the perfect plan of God. But my family is first and the church is second. Now, as believers in the body of Christ, we have priorities. And that priority is brothers and sisters first, the world second. That's, my, that's our priority. And here's why I believe this is so important. Because it's as we are demonstrating this sacrificial love for one another... And for me to do that in Powerline for 80 to 90 people as opposed to 7 billion people, 
okay, where I'm spread super thin and there's no possible way for me to touch everyone, I, I can touch 80 to 90 people or 100 or 200 or even 1,000 or whatever, but we can, well, I can touch, that's manageable. But here's what happens. When we grow in love for one another, the world looks on, and we see this throughout the book of Acts, the world looks on and says, They've got, they're doing something right there. They're doing it right. Now, it's not that we neglect or forget the world. We are called to love the world. Jesus did heal the world, if you will, the sick, those who did not believe in him. He healed them, and many of them, as a result, chose to believe in him. The ten lepers that were healed, only one came back to say thank you. Now, I don't know what happened to the other nine. Jesus did ask that, where are the other nine? But only one came back to thank him and probably became a disciple. Now maybe sometime later the other nine became disciples. We don't know. We don't know the story. But we do know that more than likely at least one did and was truly impacted by what Jesus did for him. But everyone that Jesus healed did not come and follow him. Many did not. But he still healed them. He still loved them. He still met their felt needs. Okay? Did he meet their real needs all the time? No, he didn't. He couldn't because their real need was spiritual. Okay? Their real need was a disconnect with God the Father. Um, so we do need to meet the felt needs of the world, but we do so in priority. Okay? So we don't want to so emphasize meeting the needs of the body of Christ that we neglect the world, but we don't want to become so involved in the world and trying to meet their needs with soup kitchens, etc., etc., that we neglect the, the church. We can't do that. All right? Um, I'm finding I am... I've run out of time here, and we have this last section, the local church. And so here's what I'm going to do with this, because um, several of these we are going to touch on, like leaders and um, what, we're, what we do in meetings we have kind of touched on. Um, I do want us to see this idea of the local church as being absolutely significant in the plan of God. Because we live in a day in which... There are churches on every street corner just about. If I get offended at this church, no worries. I'll just go to another church. And when I get offended with the people in that church, I'll move on to another church. And people never grow up. They never learn to deal with hurts. They're in their family and their families hurt them, so they can't wait to leave home. And there's just disconnect in the body of Christ throughout because we have not learned this idea to love one another through the hurts and get reconciled and there's, as Acts 2.42 says, that they devoted themselves to, among other things, the fellowship. Not to the principle of fellowship. I'm sure they were devoted to the principle of fellowship. But they were devoted to the fellowship. And the definite article is there. The fellowship was the local body of Christ. Some of them were meeting in homes. They all met at least in the temple. 3,000 uh, had been added on the day of Pentecost. It was continuing to grow, and they were devoted to one another. I'm sure they weren't devoted to all 3,000. You know, each of them devoted to all 3,000, but to those, as many as they could, yes, they were. And so as a result, they cared for one another, and it says that they, they had all things in common. They shared, and they met one another's needs. Okay? So... The significance of the body of Christ cannot be overemphasized in our day. We're, we, there's so much disillusionment 
within uh, the body of Christ that we don't trust leadership anymore. We don't trust one another anymore. Um, we, we, we go to this church for the teaching. We go to this church for the worship. We go to this church for the teen ministry or singles ministry or young marrieds. We go to this church for the, the missions emphasis. And, and I'm, I'm not too far off base with this. And there's this smorgasbord mentality. Why? Because there's a church on every corner. And they're not truly committed to one another. And th- this, is, this is the purpose of the local church, that we're committed to one another, there's leadership in place so that we can grow. And I am committed to this local expression of the body of Christ. And when we're committed to that, that means we're committed to the people. See, going to meetings at Powerline is not about attendance. Um, and, and though I do have... Life group leaders, more so in the past, before the life groups had to get so large, but they did take attendance. And the only reason why they took attendance is because sometimes people would miss two or three times in a row, and if they didn't take attendance, the life group leader may not have been aware of that, and there was a need, and probably an unmet need, maybe even an offense. And so he would want to contact that person, just say, hey, how you doing? And, and can I say many times when they have done this, they have discovered there's been an unmet need. There's been an offense. And, and many times it's, it's an offense with God. And they're starting to pull back from the body of Christ. And so I'm going to say it again. It is not about attendance. All right? It is about my desire to be committed to you, your desire to be committed to me and to one another. And we serve one another. And we build one another up. And when we have babies, we get to minister to the new mom and provide meals and maybe help clean the houses that might be needed. And, you know, yeah, and so we care for one another. That's why we go to these meetings. And people are going to come and, and, and they're just, they went through such a hard week. And they know that when they come, they, they want to be able to minister because that's the goal of any believer. But, you know, that day they just need ministry. They just need ministry. The devil is beat up on them so much. And we're committed to one another. Not to attend a meeting, but we go to a meeting because we're committed to one another to minister, build up, encourage, and so on. Okay. Can I close in prayer? Father, you're good. You have such encouraging purposes and a blueprint for your church that we want to walk in. Now, there's honestly so much that we could talk about on this subject of the church and its purpose and how over the centuries we have many times veered off course. We don't want to do that, God. And, and my prayer, God, is it, the extent to which power line has veered off course. God, bring us back online. Bring me back online. Give me corrected vision, Lord. Give me the proper glasses to, to see 2020. I want to see the way you see it, God. I think all of us do. I want to love my brothers and sisters the way I need to. I want to glorify you the way I need to. I don't want to let little compromises come in and rob me of the opportunity to glorify you to the max. And I just ask you, Father, help us as your church be the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the army of God, the temple of God. Help us, Lord. We love you so much. It's at the end of the age we're going to be able to stand before you 
And you're going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You lived a life exemplary. I'm so proud of you. Enter into your master's happiness with all of these rewards that that await you. God, I look forward to that day. May we each aspire to that. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.